Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that lets you contribute to my work, and that'll help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is also listed in that show notes page. If you contribute at least $4.99 per month, you're eligible for membership in the Ward Republic, which gets you one phone call with myself and the other Ward Republic members each month. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our new sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold backs. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page as well. And if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, but... For now, through January 1st, my listeners can also enjoy a 1% discount by using code LIBERTYBLOCK. So click on my link in the show notes page and help fuel monetary decentralization today. And don't forget to download the MeWe app and search for me so we can be friends and then I can add you into the show's private MeWe group so we can have sane and rational discourse around historic and current political topics. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. All right, and so today we're going to be having an interview with Professor Adam Winkler, author of We the Corporations and of UCLA Law. And Professor Winkler, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on the Jeffersonian Tradition, and how are you today? Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing terrific, and it's uh, an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. All right. Well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to study this absolutely fascinating aspect of corporate law and history? Sure. Uh, You know, I teach constitutional law and I'm a professor at UCLA and that's what I do. And I remember back in the 1990s hearing the remarkable story of Roscoe Conkling. And the story of Roscoe Conkling was uh, a senator from New York um, who was very, very powerful, considered one of the most powerful men in Washington uh, in the 20 years after the Civil War. And Uh, Roscoe Conkling eventually retired from the Senate and became uh, a lawyer for the railroads. And in a remarkable case that I remember hearing about, but never studying in law school, um, Roscoe Conkling went to the Supreme Court and argued that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was adopted after the Civil War to protect the equal rights of racial minorities, was also designed to protect the rights of business corporations. Conkling, who himself had been nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, In fact, he refused to serve. He declined to serve because he was making too much money as a lawyer for the railroads. Um, Conkling went before the justices who thought he was a peer and argued that the 14th Amendment was intended to protect corporations. And Conkling had unusual credibility. Not only was he himself um, uh, someone who had been nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court, but as a young congressman, he had sat on the committee that had drafted the 14th Amendment. So when he was talking about the original intent of the framers of the 14th Amendment, he was telling his own personal story, his own personal history. And He argued that the framers wrote the 14th Amendment to protect business corporations, not just racial minorities. And it was a remarkable story. And it turns out to be flatly untrue that there's really no evidence to support his claim that he made in that case. 
But nonetheless, the Supreme Court would go on to hold that uh, the 14th Amendment protects the rights of business corporations, too. And indeed, in the years following Conkling's argument, the Supreme Court would read the Constitution vigorously to protect the rights of business corporations, even while it was refusing to read the 14th Amendment broadly to protect the rights of African Americans. And so that story really stuck with me. And I always swore that I wanted to look more into this question of how corporations won civil rights too. Americans often think of the Constitution and how it protects the rights of people who were not originally part of the Constitution, such as racial minorities or women. Um, but uh, what I realized is that uh, one of the more successful civil rights movements in American history was the civil rights movement for corporations, and that corporations today have many of the same rights as you and me, uh, but they never had any social movement or people protesting in the streets to demand it. Absolutely. And so um, on this show, obviously, by the title, we are not fans at all of John Marshall. But now it, it seems that even he had difficulty trying to explain exactly what corporations are. And he defined them in the Dartmouth uh, College case as, quote, a corporation is an artificial being invisible, intangible and existing only in contemplation of law. Being the mere creature of law, it possesses only those properties which the charter of its creation confers upon it either expressly or as incidental to its very existence, end quote. So can you tell us a little bit about what he meant by that and how did we go from a, a corporation being, I guess, solidly recognized as its own legal entity versus what we have now? Yeah, well, you know, John Marshall's opinion about corporations was such that uh, he believed that corporations should have constitutional protections. And of course, Marshall is ruling in the early 1800s. And even though Marshall knows that there is no argument that the framers of the Constitution had intended to protect corporations, he nonetheless broadly read the Constitution to protect the rights of corporations. And his logic was that corporations were made up of people. And so that while corporations might not have explicit rights under the Constitution, the people who created corporations did have rights under the Constitution, and those people's rights had to be protected by protecting the rights of the corporation. And so when he argues that a corporation is an artificial entity, an entity that is invisible uh, and, uh, and existing only in contemplation of law, Part of what he's saying is that the corporate body, the corporate entity, is itself too ephemeral to base constitutional rights on. Instead, you have to pierce the corporate veil, look through the corporation, and see who the real parties and in interest were. And in Marshall's view, those were the incorporators, the people who came together to form and to manage and to run a corporation. So that's that's how Marshall viewed corporations. And indeed, I think Marshall's view of corporation has remained powerful in American law even to this day. Corporations have gained more and more individual rights. And often the rationale that the court has offered is that corporations are kind of invisible and ephemeral and what we need to do is protect the rights of the people behind the corporation. And the way to do that is by protecting corporate rights along the way. Now, how does that differ from, say, Blackstone's understanding of what a corporation was? Well, 
In contrast to sort of Marshall's view that a corporation is ephemeral and we need to pierce the corporate veil and look at the people behind the corporation, there is this long-standing view in American law that's also very, very powerful and very strong, especially in the area of business law, that says that a corporation is an artificial person. And by that, what that means is it's its own legally recognized entity. This is what Blackstone was talking about even before the founding, when he said that sometimes um, if we want to keep rights on hand, we create corporations so that we can have an entity that will have, say, the right to hold property, um, regardless of the identity of the people behind it. Uh, this idea of the corporation as a person, that is to say, it's not like you and me. It's not a human being. If you prick it, it does not bleed. If you tickle it, it does not laugh. <laughs> Rather, the idea is that a corporation is a legal person, a juridical person, a person as recognized by the law as someone who has the right to own property in his or her own name. Things that are not persons cannot own property. Your dog can't own property. Your desk can't own property. They're not considered legal persons. But a corporation, by calling it a legal person, meant that it would have the right to have property rights, to form contracts, and to sue and be sued in its own name. Okay, so to an extent, and, and this is kind of what I found most fascinating in your book, just going through the early portion of it that I've been able to read. It, it kind of seems like they're arguing, like, yes, it can be a person, but it can never be a citizen. Would, would that be roughly accurate? Well, that's right. Uh, a corporation would be a legal person, but it wouldn't be the same thing as a citizen. Although I should note that John Marshall did rule that corporations were citizens for some purposes. That is to say, uh, in uh, one in the very first corporate rights case that came before the Supreme Court, um, a case called Bank of the United States versus DeVoe that was decided in 1809. John Marshall wrote the majority opinion expanding the rights of the Constitution to corporations. At issue in that case was Article 3 of the Constitution uh, that provides, provides citizens with a right to sue in federal court when they sue citizens of other states. And the framers put this in uh, to uh, the Constitution um, because uh, they were uh, they were fearful that local state courts would be parochial and beholden to local interests, and a foreigner couldn't get a fair shake in a state trial, and so a federal forum would be created for citizens of different states to sue each other and would be more neutral. Uh, the Bank of the United States, when uh, Georgia passed a tax imposing special burdens on the corporation. The Bank of the United States wanted to go to federal court and use this provision so it could get a federal form rather than have to go into Georgia state courts to challenge a Georgia law that was very popular among Georgia citizens. Um, and even though the Constitution only gave the right to access federal courts to citizens under the text of the Constitution, Marshall held that corporations were included too. Um, uh, and again, it was part of his piercing the corporate veil uh, understanding that the people behind the corporation were citizens, so they should be able to sue in federal court, even if they use the corporate form. So he, wa he wanted to basically eat the cake and have it too. He, he, he wanted the benefits of what he thought the uh, Bank of the U.S. could provide, but he, he didn't want it to be subject to the limitations is, is what it sounds like. So 
That's a uh, you know that that seems to be a common character uh, characteristic of the Marshall Court. He he would say all kinds of stuff, especially in the pre ratification period. He would say all kinds of stuff and then directly refute it once he got appointed to the bench. So, uh, j- just another strike against him in my book. You really are a Jeffersonian. You don't like John Marshall. Jeez. No, no, I can't stand the Marshall <laughs> Court at all. So, but uh, so now with that, and I didn't know this about Daniel Webster again until starting to read your book. But once we get past the Marshall era and kind of into the Tony era, um, can you tell us what role Daniel or uh, yeah Daniel Webster played in furthering the diminishing of understanding corporations as their own legal entity? Well, Daniel Daniel Webster was, of course, famous as one of the greatest um, um, advocates um, in Supreme Court history. He argued more than 200 cases in the Supreme Court at a time when the Constitution was really just being worked out in court for the first time in the early 1800s. And many of his clients were corporations and um, and Webster was a big proponent of uh, constitutional protections for corporations. He was very Marshallian in that in that sense, if we will. Um, and when Marshall was the supreme was the chief justice of the Supreme Court, Webster won a lot of his cases, including the Dartmouth College case, are you know arguing that Dartmouth College had rights protected by the Constitution. But after Marshall died and was replaced by Roger Tawney. Um, who was himself an opponent of broad rights for corporations, uh, Webster found himself on the losing side of many uh, cases involving the rights of corporations. Um, uh, and, uh, and Webster, who was often in his lifetime known as the defender of the Constitution for his outstanding oratory in the Senate on behalf of the Union, um, uh, I think uh, is also well understood to be the defender of the corporation um, because he spent much of his career uh, shaping constitutional law to protect uh, the interests of business. Absolutely. And then one thing I found extremely interesting that you talked about with Daniel Webster in the book is when he was kept basically on retainer for the second bank of the United States, and then he did not recuse himself when, when it came time to renew that bank's charter. Um, I, I found that kind of funny because, as you just mentioned, he has a reputation for being the defender of the Constitution. But the Bank of the United States was a clearly unconstitutional agency because they had talked about doing that in the Philadelphia Convention, you know, uh, given the Congress power to charter a bank. It was explicitly rejected. Madison argued against it in 1791. And so they, they were really only operating off of precedent. So what what are your thoughts about Webster not recusing himself from that case when the second bank was ultimately defeated? Well, um, you know, uh, the truth of the matter is, is, is we just didn't have the same kind of conflict of interest principles in the law that we have today back then. So um, uh, there wasn't the same kind of pressure on politicians to recuse themselves from legislation on things that they had personal interests in. And in fact, it was pretty commonplace at the time for instance, um, for lawmakers to vote in favor of uh, broad rights for uh, railroad corporations that they own stock in. 
um, uh, which would be a little bit more troublesome today, although I believe we still see some of that happening. So I'm not terribly surprised. You know, Webster was someone who very much believed that business development was absolutely essential for the growth of the American state. And he thought corporations were an important mechanism for economic development and growth. And he was willing to do whatever it takes uh, to secure corporations' legal rights and the ability to operate uh, and grow our economy. Absolutely. Now, are you familiar with R.L. Dabney? Uh, I, I'm familiar with him, yes. Okay. Are, are, do you know about his essay, uh, The Philosophy Regulating Private Corporations? Yes, he takes a very Jeffersonian view of corporations. Uh, and by that, I mean that the Jeffersonian view was to oppose big corporations and to recognize broad power on the part of the state to regulate corporations. Um, in Jefferson's mind, um, as in the mind uh, of Dabney and others that would follow, uh, big corporations were a threat to liberty. And uh, if we wanted to have a society that was agrarian, that was connected to the land, uh, we needed to stop creating these big entities that locked in tremendous amounts of capital, that built factories, that pulled people away from the farms uh, and, and brought them into a different kind of industrial uh, economy. Um, uh, and uh, so that Jeffersonian view of corporations has, has always been there and is still part of American rhetoric today. Uh, although it doesn't seem too many people are willing to get rid of their Starbucks and other big corporations that they rely upon. Right. Well, and that's something. So I, I was once upon a time, I, I was a pretty radical libertarian of the more anarchist variety, but I've kind of come to the Jeffersonian worldview over about the past two years. And that that is something reading Dabney and then later on the Southern Agrarians, they make a very good point when you concentrate that much wealth, even if it's in private hands you really take away any sort of semblance of autonomy that, that, you know, your average Joes have, so to speak. So what, what are some things that we can do to try to restore balance there? Well, I think we're very, very, very far out of whack when it comes to balance on this issue. And there's a long, long way to go. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that there is a pathway. America, the American economy has been built on the back of corporations. Corporations have become the most dominant form of business organization in America today. They're used for big entities and big businesses like Starbucks, as I mentioned before, or Amazon, but also used by small businesses. Your local mom and pop liquor store down the street or barber shop down the street is also formed as a corporation. And uh, virtually everybody in the economy, well, not everybody, but so many people in the economy use the corporate form as a way of limiting liability, of uh, increasing investment, uh, and providing a mechanism for uh, economic development and growth. And for that, I think corporations have proven themselves to be very, very effective. Um, uh, but we have a long, long way to go before we, the people, are empowered over we, the corporations. Right. And so specifically building on the Southern Agrarians, have you ever read their book, Who Owns America? I have not. Very, very interesting book. If you can ever get your hands on it, uh, Herbert Herbert Hagar is the one who wrote it, or Her Herbert Hager. I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. He He's the one who compiled it. Uh, it's basically a series of essays from miscellaneous different agrarian outlooks. But part of what they said, now this was too radical for me, but part of what they said was basically, look, 
we have this corporate situation. They really thought it was going to only terminate in one of two ways. One, you could have fascism or one, you could have communism. And I found it kind of interesting because, you know, obviously the modern definition of communism that we get um, did not really fit what they were saying back then, which this was in the mid-1930s. But the agrarian said, well, look, communist Russia, they don't hate corporations. They actually love corporations because, it, you know, it's a further centralizing agent. It centralizes labor, it centralizes cost, and it helps them regulate prices and everything else. So what they thought was when you had corporations that had concentrated a particular industry— they wanted the states to just outright take over the corporation. If it was small enough, then sell it to an individual within five years. That's a little bit too far for me. I, I don't. I still don't like that approach. But I mean, I, I guess kind of going back to what we were just talking about. I mean, what can you do? What What are some real reform measures that could even begin to, I guess, to turn the dial in the opposite direction? Well, I guess the question is, what are we trying to accomplish? And then we know what we're trying to do. One thing I think most Americans are not interested in doing is preventing corporations from feeding economic growth and the development of the economy. Um, people still want their products, right? They want innovative products. They want medicines that come from innovation and research. Um, they want the vehicles that provide them the kind of luxury and transportation uh, with all the bells and whistles that they have come to expect. And all those, all those things are in part the result of corporations. I think where we need to focus our, um, our consideration is on corporate political power, on the things we can do to restore the power of the people to control corporations. I don't think we need to get rid of the corporations. They're useful, but we need to restore uh, popular control over corporations. If uh, a state doesn't want a certain corporation operating within its borders, we should consider how we can make that work if we can. If we want to limit corp the corporate voice in politics by limiting, say, corporate campaign contributions, I think that the courts should allow that to occur. Um, instead, however, I think we're seeing the courts go the other way, and they're increasingly expanding the rights of corporations to give them more and more power and to immunize them further and further from popular control. Absolutely. And then on, on that, what the comment you made about the states just then. So I do actually have a question about that. I, I have never understood why don't corporations have to reincorporate or recharter each time they open a location in a new state? Well, because we have general incorporation laws that provide that a corporation can establish itself for any business purpose whatsoever. And as a result, why would it need to reincorporate just because it's operating in a new marketplace? Um, if you want to operate in a state um, that you haven't operated in before, um, states do have the authority to require that you register with the state. They do have authority to require that you provide an address for service of process so you can be sued in the state. Um, uh, but uh, as a general matter, it's not really clear why they would need to have a completely new reincorporation just because they go into a new state. Um, and part of the reason why we don't require that is, again, this idea that goes back to Marshall and piercing the corporate veil and giving corporate entities the same rights as the rights, uh, same rights as enjoyed by their members, the people behind the corporation. And just as people can go from one state to another and don't have to 
reincorporate or get some new permission necessarily to operate within a new state. Uh, neither do corporations. And that's partly why the Supreme Court has allowed corporations to expand and expand without having to worry about reincorporation. Perhaps more troublesome than corporations reincorporating every time they opened up a new store or opened up uh, a new store in a new state might be questions about uh, whether we should have in, uh, reincorporation when corporations change their business. Um, uh, some corporations operate for some purposes, but then buy other businesses or branch out into new businesses uh, that may not be supported by the shareholders or may not be supported by the other constituents of the corporation. Maybe that's a space that we can look at, but we're very, very far removed from that. Well, so I guess my outlook on this and, and kind of the way I thought about it, and I am not a legal expert by, by any means, but I, I do not consider the U.S. to be a unitary nation state. So I, I guess, and you sort of talked about this in your book, if a corporation had to recharter each time it went into a new state, could, couldn't the state basically impose controls through the charter? Yes, it could, theoretically, but the Supreme Court uh, has said that uh, efforts by the state to keep business, lawful businesses out uh, run, can run afoul of the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, uh, or what's known as the Dormant Commerce Clause, the idea that states cannot impose barriers to, to interstate commerce, that the federal government has the power to regulate interstate commerce, not state governments. That wasn't the view, I think, of the founders. It wasn't the view of most lawmakers and Supreme Court justices in the early 1800s. But that, that understanding of the Commerce Clause has grown and uh, now protects corporations that want to operate in other states. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Because even, even with Marshall, um, you know, you mentioned the United States versus DeVoe or, or Bank of the United States versus DeVoe. Didn't he essentially kind of take a chameleon approach and then revisit that question even in the McCulloch v. Maryland case? Yes, indeed. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, Marshall was not any more consistent than the rest of our Supreme Court justices <laughs> who tend to uh, take each case and figure out a way to rule the way they want to rule uh, in that particular case. Uh, theory or consistency be damned. Um, so, yeah, that that does happen. Um Really, what we've seen uh, in America, though, and we should recognize it, is a very steady and persistent effort by business corporations to win constitutional cases, giving them the rights of people. Um, we, we often think about the civil rights movement for blacks or uh, the, civil, the women's rights movement uh, for constitutional equality for women. Um, and we think about those things in terms of how people have made demands on society, shown society that they're deserving of constitutional rights and should not be denied them. But corporations never marched in the street. They just fought in the Supreme Court to try to win these rulings. And one thing that we should recognize about the Supreme Court is that although we often think of the Supreme Court in terms of left or right, whether it's progressive or conservative, when it comes to business issues, um, the Supreme Court has overwhelmingly been pro-business for its entirety uh, of uh, 200 odd years of existence. So um, uh, businesses tend to win when they go to the Supreme Court. Right. And then just one other question before we move on to kind of our next subject with this. In terms of 
getting popular control instilled back in them is it, what what are your thoughts on esops esops are valuable and effective tools one of the things i think that reformers, uh, corporate reformers have been seeking to do in recent years, like ESOPs, uh, which are, you know, give, uh, you know, uh, employees stock options and thus give them a, uh, uh, give, give them an, uh, an opportunity to participate uh, in uh, governance of the corporation, is whether we need to move to some kind of more Germanic model. In Germany, corporations um, are required to have on their board uh, 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 representatives of employees, not just representatives of shareholders. And I think that's an interesting way of thinking about the problem, that part of our issue with corporations today is that they seem too beholden to shareholder interests, that they're trying to make short-term profits and the future is not of their concern. Um, whereas if we were to create a corporate governance model that was responsive to other constituents, not just shareholders, but also employees, maybe con maybe consumers, maybe other communities of interest. Well, then we can maybe potentially control corporations from within. This is the solution that's been suggested by a professor at Boston College Law School named Kent Greenfield, who wrote a book called Corporations Are People Too, and They Should Act Like It. Um, and, uh, and his argument is not that we shouldn't be giving corporations rights, but rather we should be changing corporate governance to be more responsive to the people, um, on the inside. Absolutely. And that, that's something after reading the Southern agrarians, again, their solution was a little bit too radical for me, but you know, if you turn and look at the distribution of share ownership and you, and you give the employees a, a meaningful stake, I mean, you, you got companies out there like Winco they're pretty much completely employee owned and they've been extremely successful. And uh, ju just for the audience's sake, when you have an, an employee owned company, that does not mean that the inmates get to run the asylum, you know, to use as a metaphor. That just simply means they actually have a voting voice. Like when it comes time for different shareholder decisions, the, em the employees get a place at the table. And, and I think that's a good thing because I think one big problem when you have just outsider shareholders Look, I'm invested in like 16 different companies. Apple is one of them. I'm going to use them as an example. I have no clue how Apple runs their business. So why should I have a say on if they're going to move a store, shut down a store or anything like that? I, I don't think I should. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that's a really good way to get some sort of balance back into the equation between employees, management and shareholders is you give the employees some sort of voice at the table. Yeah, not, I think that's a very strong argument. The argument that's traditionally made against having employees at the table um, is revolves around um, uh, the separation of ownership and control and the potential for management misuse of corporate assets. Part of the argument is, is that if management of a corporation has multiple people they need to respond to, multiple constituencies with different interests, well, then they can really do anything they want with the corporate resources because they can always say, well, we're doing this on behalf of employees. If the employees don't like it, they can say we're doing it on behalf of the shareholders. If the shareholders don't like it, they can say we're doing it on behalf of consumers. Um, whereas if we only have to respond to shareholders, well, maybe corporate management will be a little bit more restrained and we have a basis of judging what they do. Does it help shareholders or not? 
However, I think that logic is not accurate. It's not bad logic, but it doesn't fit our current reality where we see corporations um, uh, and corporate management uh, using excessive perks, flying on private airplanes. You know, there's no people in society who uh, use other people's money more to satisfy themselves than corporate executives. Um, uh, anyone who's pay, paying with their own money uh, it does not have those kinds of perks, um, but corporate executives do. Uh, and uh, I think what we should do is focus less on corporate management's potential misbehavior and creating a system in which all the different constituencies of corporations can be heard and can exercise some control over the fate of that corporate entity. Right. And then along along those same lines, you know, when you have, <clears throat> excuse me, when you have corporations who are only acting allegedly on the benefit of shareholders, what happens when you get these outsider and activist investment groups and they're taking over the company ostensibly for a hostile purpose? Like uh, you look at Third Point LLC, they're trying to take over, Dut, or I'm sorry, the uh, shell company. And they want to split Shell up. And we have no idea what, what impact that's going to have on the employees or, or anything like that. But they're doing this through a completely private mode. They're not getting the government involved. They're just simply taking in shares through a vacuum and trying to build up a majority position to force their will on the company. So I think that presents all kinds of problems in and of itself. That's right. And employees are often the ones who are left holding the bill uh, that uh, we've seen this all the way back to the leverage buyouts of the 1980s and 1990s when investment firms would raise money to buy a corporation, buy an entity, uh, reorganize the entity to make it more efficient and cost effective so that they could turn around and sell it for more money. But the problem was is that making it more efficient, quote unquote, usually involved just firing large numbers of employees and putting people out onto the street where they don't have the money to feed their families, et cetera. So we need to have a vision of corporations that is not solely oriented around shareholders right. uh, and one that's more capacious, that recognizes broad uh, stakeholder rights. We're seeing some moves in this direction, at least superficially, I think. Um, the Business Roundtable for decades was arguing for shareholder exclusive focus of corporate management and in recent years has changed its approach and argued that corporations must be responsive to a whole range of different stakeholders including employees and consumers of interest and communities of interest and consumers and others so maybe that will uh, in the long run uh, create some lasting changes around corporate behavior uh, but we're still a long way to go from there Absolutely. And so we'll we'll go ahead and move into our next topic. Um, and inevitably, this had to come up. So can you tell us a bit about how corporate civil rights cases have led to such a prominent presence of corporations in our politics? Well, sure. I mean, not only have corporations fought to secure rights to, say, sue in federal court, um, but they've also sought rights of free speech, rights of religious freedom, um, uh, and rights that protect them from being punished or targeted by the government. In fact, they've sought these rights that guaranteed them the ability to influence the government. I think many people, if we go back 100 years ago, corporations brought some of the first legal challenges to campaign finance laws. The early campaign finance laws restricted corporate money in politics. 
And corporations, especially beer companies that were looking to fight against prohibition in the 19-teens, fought against these bans on corporate contributions to candidates, these corporate campaign finance laws, because they wanted to make these expenditures. But back then, the courts consistently ruled against the companies, finding that political speech and political participation is something that's only guaranteed by the Constitution to ordinary people and not guaranteed to business corporations. But we seem to have lost sight of that vision. And in more recent cases, such as the notorious Citizens United case decided in 2010, where the Supreme Court said that corporations have the same First Amendment rights as ordinary individuals to participate in electoral politics, at least with regards to advertisements and things like that. Of course, corporations don't have the right to vote yet, um, uh, but they do have the right to spend unlimited amounts of money in uh, support of issues and uh, the candidates that support those issues. Absolutely. And that was actually going to be my next question. So you, you have expressed some criticism of the Citizens United decision. So in, in your mind, what could have been done differently there? Well, so many things could have been done differently. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the most important thing is that the court should have said that Congress is well within its rights to restrict corporate money in electoral politics. Um, remember, by saying that corporations can't spend money on election ads does not mean that business interests can't be reflected in uh, these advertisements. In fact, under our ordinary system of campaign finance, business interests, that is to say business people who've made their money on businesses, who own corporations, who own stock, um, who've made a fortune, they're the people who are the most empowered in our political system. So what I think the court should have done is said that, uh, that uh, courts, Congress can do what it's done for a hundred years, which is adopt special rules restricting corporate money in politics so that we can ensure that politics are responsive to we the people. And I think that even in that system, if the court were to do that, business interests would still have a tremendously large voice. And there would be no reasonable claim to say that business interests were being discriminated against because those business in interests couldn't use corporate money to uh, influence elections. Absolutely. And then it seems like over that little span there from two to, uh, from 2010 up to about 2018 that the Supreme Court just made a lot of really bad decisions in a very short amount of time. So I want to talk about the Hobby Lobby case. What was the significance of giving the corporate entity First Amendment rights that were separate from the family who owns that private corporation? Yeah, well, that's a great, a great, uh, it's a great example of, uh, of how I think corporate rights have gone wrong. Um so Hobby Lobby, what was involved in that is that the chain of craft store filed a lawsuit challenging an Obama-era regulation um, that came out of the Affordable Care Act that required large corporations, large companies, to provide um, uh, in their health insurance plans coverage, health insurance coverage for their employees. Uh, and that included uh, various forms of birth control. And Hobby Lobby's owners, the Green family, objected to this law and uh, wanted to challenge it. And so using Hobby Lobby, uh, the corporation went to court and said, we have a First Amendment right to religious freedom and we don't want to provide birth control to our employees. And so uh, we don't want to have to cover birth control in our insurance policies. 
Uh, and so we have a religious freedom right to be exempt from this law. And the Supreme Court ultimately agreed and said, you're right, you are exempt uh, from that law. Um, the, the, and I think the court got it wrong there for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, the Green family, I think, was imposing their personal values on a business corporation. The Green family that owned Hobby Lobby um, said that, uh, that their religious beliefs should be reflected in Hobby Lobby's practices. Um, Contrast that if someone had slipped and fallen at a Hobby Lobby store, they would be there saying, the, and then they sued the Green family. The Greens would say, hey, look, you can't sue us. The, you have to sue the corporation, Hobby Lobby. It's a totally different legal entity than we are. And you can't sue us and get our money. You can only sue Hobby Lobby, the co corporation. Um, so the, the Green family would want to have corporate personhood to protect them, with, creates a separation between the corporate entity and the owners of the enterprise if someone were to slip and fall. But when it came to uh, birth control, uh, all of a sudden the Green family thought there was no difference between Hobby Lobby, the corporate entity, and the owners of the enterprise. Um, of course, Hobby Lobby can't have any religious beliefs. It's a legal fiction. It's a corporate entity. It doesn't go to church. It's devoted towards uh, to making profit. Um, but uh, what Hobby Lobby did by recognizing the religious freedom rights of corporations uh, was to allow the owners of enterprise to impose their religious beliefs on employees and on a corporation, which by itself should not have any religious beliefs. Right. It, well, and that, that's reading again through your book. That's kind of the realization that really clicked with me is if you're going to take all the benefits of the corporate form, then inherently you take all the restrictions that come along with that. But it seems like in case after case that that's just not what we see. But on the Hobby Lobby case in particular, I do want to add my two cents on that from the Jeffersonian perspective. So I, I'm a big believer in nullification. Now, my thought process on this is why not just leave it up to the individual states? So, you know, let's say if Hobby Lobby had a store in California and California said, we are enforcing this federal law, you must provide this coverage. Why does that need to get out of California? And then everybody sort of gets what they want, because if they have a store in Alabama and Alabama says, well, that's fine. We don't really like the law anyway, so don't enforce it. Again, you kind of get the best of both worlds there, in my opinion. Well, potentially. I mean, one thing we've seen is uh, if we want to know what have, why we've seen a demise in state rights, in states' rights in American law, I think corporations are one of the primary reasons we have seen that. Big corporations operating nationally don't want to have to follow 50 different legal regimes. They don't want states to be regulating them um, because uh, that would be 50 different set of legal regimes that they have to follow. And Hobby Lobby doesn't want to have to figure out uh, how to obey the law in California and then how to obey the law in Alabama or Arkansas or somewhere else. And so we've seen over the course of American history, especially over the course of the late 1800s and early first half of the 1900s, corporations pushing for the federal government to step in and to eliminate the differences among these different states so that corporations can operate more efficiently and more effectively without having, with, without having to respect all of these different state laws that can be changed on, on them with some great regularity. So uh, these corporations have been fighting against states' rights for a long time. 
Absolutely. Well, and you, and you pointed that out very well in your book when you talked about the Teddy Roosevelt administration. It seems like that's really about the time uh, the government got comfortable with the idea and, and uh, the corporations really figured out, look, it's a lot easier to lobby and take over one than, than to take over the 50. So that's um, that, that was news to me. Uh, you know, obviously going through school and even up through college history courses, I learned of Teddy Roosevelt, the reformer, not Teddy Roosevelt, the corporationalist. So that, that was very interesting to read about. Yeah, that's something that I enjoyed finding myself. You know, we all have this image of Teddy Roosevelt as being this trust buster, this guy who came down hard against the biggest, most powerful corporations in America at the time. And I was shocked when I did my own research and I found that Roosevelt was involved in maybe the biggest uh, corporate campaign finance scandal of all time. Uh, back in the early 1900s, it turns out that basically he had been elected in 1904 um, thanks to corporate money. He had raised uh, the vast majority of his money from business corporations. And then when that became a little bit of a scandal in the years afterwards, he denied it and said he didn't get money from corporations. Um, and then that turned out to blow up in his face. Uh, there was a big scandal known as the Great Wall Street scandal of 1905 to 1907. And it was um, a scandal that showed that corporations were actually had taken over campaign financing and that if campaigns were going to be financed by corporations, well, guess who the elected officials are going to listen to? The corporations. <laughs> They're, They're not going to be listening to you and me. And part of the reason why Roosevelt becomes known as a trust buster is in part to combat this scandal that has shown that no president in American history had ever received as much corporate support uh, as Roosevelt and his immediate predecessor, William McKinley. So uh, the great trust buster was himself in the pocket of big corporations. Absolutely. And uh, before we move on to the next topic, I, I just wanted to quote one thing I found hilarious from from your book. You're, you're here. You're talking about Henry C. Frick, uh, who, who had contributed or who had played the game with Roosevelt. And he said, quote, we bought that son of a bitch and he didn't stay bought. And quote, I, I thought that was hilarious. That's right. Although I think, you know what, he stayed more bought than they ever realized. You know, he came down hard against some of the trusts but only a handful of them. And I think over the course of American history, um, uh, one would look at the early 1900s when Roosevelt was president uh, and notice only a slight, and I mean very slight, um, uh, barrier to the ultimate rise and success of the American business corporation. Um, uh, and indeed, most historians look at that period as the period of corporate consolidation, of corporate growth, of uh, corporate, uh, in so many ways, corporate takeover of American politics. So we did have a great, uh, quote unquote, trust buster. Um, but uh, in the long run, the corporations weren't stymied much by him at all. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. Um, are you familiar with any of the works of Murray Rothbard? No. So Murray, Murray Rothbard was a fantastic uh, anarcho-capitalist. He was an economist, and then he kind of turned historian later on, or like economic historian. He, he actually wrote a book on the progressive era, and he, he uncovered a lot of graft and, and fraud and just blatant corruption. So for, for yourself, if you're interested in reading that, great book. But for the audience, if y'all want to read that, definitely a, a book worth reading. But I did want to ask you about one more Supreme Court case in recent memory, which is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. 
Now, libertarians love to hold this case up as a strong defense of property rights. When I was in my strong libertarian phase, this was actually something I was like, yes, this is the only right answer in this case. Suffice it to say, over the last two years, as I've been forced to kind of reevaluate my beliefs, uh, my outlook has evolved to say that a business honestly should have to play by the rules of the state they are operating in. But then after reading what you had to say about it, you specifically pointed out that the owner of the cake shop essentially wanted to hide behind the protections of the corporation, but did not want to be subject to any of the limitations that came along with that. So in your opinion, would the outlook of that case be different if the owner had structured the business, say, as a sole proprietorship, which would have made it a private property case versus a corporate public accommodation case? Maybe. Uh, you know, it's very possible that that could have uh, changed or affected the the outcome in it. I, I don't think under the current Supreme Court it would have mattered, right? They were willing to expand the rights of business corporations uh, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop, too. This was a case involving a baker uh, in Colorado who refused to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple, despite the fact that Colorado had a law outlawing sexual orientation discrimination. Um, and uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, like Hobby Lobby, said that if the, they have to follow this rule, then uh, they will be violating their religious beliefs. But again, it wasn't Masterpiece Cake Shop that had any religious beliefs. Uh, you know, you go to the local church, Masterpiece Cake Shop doesn't show up. It doesn't attend services. Uh, it was never baptized. It was never bar mitzvahed. Instead, we're finding that the religious beliefs of the owner of the enterprise are being used to control the company and to disregard the law if the owner doesn't like it. But again, that's the whole idea of corporate personhood is the idea that the corporation's a separate legal entity, that if you slip and fall at a Starbucks or a masterpiece cake shop for that reason, for that matter, you can't sue the owner of the enterprise. You have to sue the enterprise itself. You have to sue Starbucks or you have to sue the, the baking company and their insurance will cover it uh, or not. But you don't get to, to sue the shareholders who own the enterprise. So Masterpiece Cake Shop, again, the owner, if you had slipped and fall, fallen in a Masterpiece Cake Shop store and then sued the owner, um, he would have said, hey, you can't sue me. Corporate personhood, where there's a separate legal entity, the corporation, you have to sue the corporation. But when it came to religious beliefs, the owner wanted to impose his religious beliefs on the corporation um, uh, and as a result was able to disregard binding law that says you shall not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing, I think, corporate rights being used today to inhibit equal rights for LGBTQ people, because corporations that are run by people with religious beliefs that are opposed to same-sex marriages uh, and other gay relationships are uh, trying to use those corporate rights to give them immunity from laws requiring them to treat all people equally. By the way, corporations did this in the civil rights era, too. There were big corporations that challenged the Civil Rights Act and said that this interferes with their right to do business with who they want to do business with. Back in the civil rights era, however, the court limited the ability of corporations uh, to refuse to follow the law, especially when it came to discrimination. Um, but the court today seems much more open to the idea that corporations can pick and choose among the anti-discrimination laws they wish to follow. Right. And I, and I think, so your, your take on the masterpiece case, 
that that really kind of opened my eyes, which which I'd sort of been coming around to this because of the agrarians, but it, it doesn't really even matter what size the corporation is, right? If somebody wants to take advantage of the benefits, then we, we have to realize that that also comes along with the limitations. You, you know, you can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too, or eat your cake and have it too. If you're going to take the benefits, then you, you got to take the baggage that comes along with that. And you had also talked in your book about how, I, I think it was maybe in the late 1800s, uh, the public accommodation um, cases that, that arose in the Supreme Court with the, was it the horse races? That's right. That's right. But, you know, long before Masterpiece Cake Shop, corporations went to the Supreme Court arguing that they had a constitutional right to ignore anti-discrimination laws. Uh, I talk about a case decided by the Supreme Court in the early 1900s where uh, the racetrack up in Northern California um, uh, did not want to follow a law in California that required places of public amusement to serve anyone with a valid ticket. Again, this is an early form of anti-discrimination law, that if someone has a valid ticket, you can't keep them off your property if you're a place of public amusement. And uh, the corporation involved there was a racetrack, Tanferin Racetrack up in Northern California. Um, if you have any listeners who are fans of the book or movie Seabiscuit, Seabiscuit was based out of the Tanferin Racetrack. Uh, Tanferin Racetrack was also less honorably used as an internment camp in World War II for Japanese, people of Japanese descent. Um, but the owners of Tanferin Racetrack, who wanted to be able to keep uh, people out uh, who they didn't like, um, uh, challenged this early anti-discrimination law as a violation of their constitutional rights and said this is like forcing uh, a dinner party host to uh, invite guests to his dinner uh, that he did not wish to serve. And the Supreme Court back then rejected that argument and said, no, you can't just exempt yourself from these anti-discrimination laws. However, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, a hundred years later, more, a little bit more than a hundred years later, the Supreme Court went the other way and has allowed people to exempt themselves from otherwise binding anti-discrimination laws. It shows how corporate rights have really taken precedence over almost any other kind of right in America. No, that, and you're absolutely right. And regardless of about how people feel about the LGBT community, I think the dynamics of that case would have been extremely different if it was set up as a sole proprietorship where, where there was no sort of legal separation between the man and the business. Then you can say, I have a crisis of conscience. I don't want to do this. And I think it would have been wrong to compel him to do that. But as we were talking about earlier, given that he did specifically seek the benefits of incorporation, it's like, look, a corporation does not have a conscience. That's right. And he, and, and part of the problem is, as you said it, they're trying to have their cake and uh, eat it too. Uh, they want the protections that come from the separation of the corporate entity from the owners of the enterprise when it comes to liability, but they want to ignore that separation when it comes to religious freedom or otherwise. If it was a sole proprietorship, um, there wouldn't be the same uh, ability. Wouldn't be the same ability to protect yourself from the liability that's imposed on the corporation. Um, so, uh, uh it, it's very possible that you can imagine a world in which that case comes out differently if it's a sole proprietorship. Um, uh, but uh, like I say, in, in both cases, the court was willing to expand the rights to corporations to ignore a binding anti-discrimination laws. Right. Now, um, 
with this, so we'll we'll go ahead and leave that topic. But I did have one other thing before we move into our wrap up. So something else I just found absolutely fascinating is in the introduction of your book. You're talking about the Virginia Company and the Massachusetts Bay Company. With that, um, I'm going to sort of tie this into the debate kind of surrounding the ability of of so-called private corporations to issue vaccine mandates. Where do you think we draw that line? Because you you pointed out in your book, the Virginia company basically owned its settlers or or at least the bonded labor. So where, where do we draw that line now in modern times saying how much authority a corporation has over the bodies of its employees? You know, it's a good question. And I think the vaccine mandates have really brought that to the fore. Uh, right, that corporations are really able to, because of their freedoms, to impose a lot of burdens upon other people, Um, whether it's uh, a mandate to get vaccinated um, or or other things. Maybe some uh, we've seen some corporations fire people for writing op-eds on political issues that have nothing to do with the corporation. Um, And uh, uh, and having that kind of unfettered power uh, in the hands of corporations who are seeking really just to make profit without regard to other values uh, can be very problematic uh, in terms of how we govern our society, how we respect individual liberty. And I think our whole discussion, I think, points out with one of the problems of our Jeffersonian constitution and uh, the original way in which we established our country. When Jefferson was writing, the main threat to individual liberty was government. That was the big collective entity that needed to be restrained. In today's modern America, it's not just government, it's also big corporations. People might work for a big corporation and get all their goods from corporations and really depend on corporations to, to, for their mortgage, uh, to, for their basic living expenses, and even their home itself. And so uh, today we recognize that people to have full liberty must have protections against corporates, corporations as well. From the, must have protections from their employers, not just protections against the government. So I think it's really uncovered one of the big weaknesses in our Constitution. We protect personal liberty versus government interference, but we haven't figured out a way to protect individual liberty from corporate interference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Professor Winkler, we have covered an awful lot of ground today, and I want to thank you so much again for your time and for joining us on the Jeffersonian tradition. Aside from your book, We the Corporations, are there any final thoughts or resources you want to share with the audience? No, but I thought this was a really fun and engaging conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's a a real honor and a pleasure. And if any of your listeners have any questions, I encourage them to reach out to me directly. Uh, Adam Winkler at UCLA Law School. A quick Google search will turn up all my information and contact information. So uh, I wish you and all your listeners the very best. All right. Now make sure to link to your book. Again, that is titled We the Corporations in our show notes page. And thanks again for your time. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener. And don't forget to help fuel monetary freedom by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your gold backs today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.